This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's corporate cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. You're home alone. You have an uneasy feeling in the darkness. Like someone or something is watching you. Why is it suddenly cold in this room? You hear footsteps, whispers, or even laughter. You go to check. You feel a presence behind you and then the fear sets in i'm k-town and you're listening to paranormal fears president of the Ghost Research Society, which is an organization that was started back in 1977 by uh, myself and Martin B. Ricardo. Uh, we were a bunch of like-minded individuals at that time that had an interest in the paranormal. Um, we started investigating, researching, and looking into mostly at that time reports in the Chicagoland area, which is where I'm home-based. And um, I started um, out as a research assistant for that group. I worked as five years as a research assistant from 77 to 1982 under the, actually the, the, the name at that time was the Ghost uh, Trackers um, Society, Ghost Trackers Club, excuse me. And uh, the thing with that is that uh, it didn't sound you know, real professional. So in 1982, when uh, Martin uh, Ricardo decided to go uh, in a different direction, uh, he gave me control of the organization at that time. We changed the name to Ghost Research Society, which is a bit more indicative of what we actually do, ghost research. Since that time, I've investigated uh, probably close to 4,000 cases in 46-plus years of work in the field. I've been all over the country uh, to England and Wales uh, several occasions. I plan on going back there for a two-week trip to England next year to do a lot of investigating and hopefully talk at the prestigious Ghost Club. Uh, which was founded back in the 1880s. Uh, I was an honorary member of that group for a long time. I was also a member of the International Fortean Organization, the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained, and uh, numerous other uh, organizations that I worked with, uh, networked with uh, in locations throughout the country. What we try to do is be a bit more scientific in our approach to the paranormal. Uh, while we do have people in our group that are somewhat intuitive, I like to stay more scientifically based with equipment and uh, actual techniques, methodologies to investigate 
uh, the paranormal and gather evidence. Um, our group is not a ghost busting group. Uh, we don't go there to remove the ghost. Uh, we have people that uh, I work with, uh, professional psychics on occasion that say they can do that. Uh, we're there more or less to collect evidence, data, find out if there really is something going on or if there's a natural explanation for what's going on. And uh, we have uh, probably about 30 members in our group right now. Um, we have a overseas uh, director, uh, Paul Adams, who just came uh, back from a two-week trip here. And I showed him all around. Uh, he's in a reciprocate, and we're going to go over there in 2023. I have uh, state coordinators in uh, uh, New Jersey, uh, Missouri, California, Kentucky, and uh, several other states. And um, so we're basically a, a kind of a research organization. We have a website called ghostresearch.org that people can go and visit and find out more information about us. So like growing up, I mean, did you ever experience anything weird or unusual? Maybe you lived in a haunted house or, or something like maybe a family member or anything like that at any point in time? No, actually, I never did. Uh, I, when I talked to a lot of people who uh, I uh, from leaders of groups or leading investigators or people that are in other groups, a lot of times that's their um, determining factor, more or less, in getting involved with a paranormal group is because they had an experience. I had a very uneventful childhood, um, moved around quite a bit, went to 13 different schools um, before I graduated high school. And um, what really got me involved in paranormal was my parents and my grandparents telling me ghost stories when I was a youngster. Um, my grandparents came from Poland um, on both sides of the family. Recently did an ancestry DNA test, and I'm 96% Polish, so I know where my uh, roots pretty much are. And they told me stories not only uh, from what we call the old country, Poland, uh, but later when they came over here, and um, my mom and dad. My dad was actually more of a, I guess you would call him the ghost hunter, more or less. I don't like using that term because it uh, looks like you're walking around with a you know, firearm trying to hunt the ghost, but that's what they called us back then. And he was kind of the ghost hunter of the, of the family, more or less. He uh, had heard about a story in the Chicagoland area from 1930s uh, called Resurrection Berries, a very famous hitchhiking ghost story. It's been going on since at least 1933, 34. And uh, my mom and dad were dating at that time, so my dad would take my mom, mom out to a movie, a theater, uh, you know, some dance or something like that. And of course, on the way home on Saturday night, his favorite thing was right around that cemetery in the middle of the night looking for the coast. Uh, much to the chagrin of my mom, who was absolutely terrified, didn't want any part of this at all. They never saw the ghost, but it was my dad. Uh, he wasn't satisfied just hearing the story. He wanted to see for himself that there was something to this. And these are the kind of stories that I was told as a youngster. Uh, that was probably my first ghost story that I was told. And it's still going on in the Chicagoland area. The sightings are few and far between now, but occasionally people do come across a, an interesting encounter there. And when I grew up, I decided to look into some of these stories. And that's kind of, I guess, how this group was formed. This at first loosely associated group of like-minded people that uh, wanted to explore, check out, research, and investigate, you know, claims of ghost sightings in the Chicagoland area. Now, 
back when I started, there was no World Wide Web. Uh, there was no equipment per se. Uh, there were what they call BBSs, bulletin board services, chat rooms, modified chat rooms. And most of the correspondence I got was through a PO box through what we call today snail mail. Uh, so it was more difficult to get reports. It took a long time to get written stuff. But my box was always flooded with uh, uh, pictures and descriptions, accounts, personal uh, you know, experiences that people had uh, in the Chicagoland area. Then it began to spread out as I formed what was then called the Ghost Trackers Newsletter, which started in November of 1982 and ran all the way to uh, October 2001. It was uh, nearly 20 years of doing that newsletter, uh, the official newsletter for the Ghost Research Society. Uh, when we kind of put that to bed, because I started to do more serious writing at that time, I wrote uh, six different books on the subject. Um, we, we decided to put together another one called The Journal uh, for the members. And that's, that went on for a few years. Um, and again, I, I was doing most of the writing at that time, so I didn't have much time to devote to what I really wanted to do was write some books. So I started an online newsletter called The Ghostly Whisper. And that went off for a year or two. And then again, I found myself writing all the stories again. So um, what we tried to do with the newsletter and through the correspondence was just to point out to people places around their neighborhood, their city, their state that was haunted. Uh, through research and investigations and uh, my extensive library and so forth that I put together uh, to kind of show people what, what they can experience, what they can maybe just jump in a car, maybe 10, 15 minutes, half an hour, hour away and find something maybe quite unusual. Yeah, that's it. And I'm going to take you down that road, too, because I'm interested in how now you go about vetting your cases. Um, I want to stay that, there just a minute with you, Dale, because, um, I mean, you haven't admittedly hadn't had anything happen to you prior to deciding to uh, invest a lot of your free time in uh, trying to get to the bottom of some of this phenomenon or investigate some of this phenomenon. So I'm just wondering, I mean, why, why would you do it? I mean, you haven't had any, anything happen to you. I mean, was it because maybe friends experience things and, and you know, that for, you know, they, they are credible. Um, or were you just trying to see if you can experience something for yourself? I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I'm trying to see what would make someone who hasn't actually experienced anything like that invest so much time. I mean, 4,000 cases, that's a, that's a lot of cases. That's a lot of time. What, what made you do that? Well, I think, I think mostly it was curiosity at first. Okay. Because, uh, you know, these stories that my parents, grandparents told me were five minutes away from my house. So it was very easy to jump in a car, as I, as I said before, and just go through maybe try to experience something there and then to research, to talk to people that had experiences. Um, I think um, really I, besides my parents, grandparents telling me ghost stories, I think an, another main reason um, probably that I got involved you know, in the paranormal was to kind of prove the existence of life after death. Um, we all believe that at least most people do believe that there is some life after death, that our existence here on Earth is just a small portion of our uh, total existence, that we have a spirit, a soul, if you will, that uh, goes somewhere after we die. So I, I figured if I could, uh, through scientific research, investigation, uh, high-tech equipment, and good uh, 
theories, methodologies, hypotheses, um, get involved with enough evidence that I could prove that there were ghosts definitively. And then if I could prove that there were ghosts, in other words, a surviving personality, a disembodied spirit of a once living person, then you pretty much prove that there's life after death because it proves that, you know, when we just die, that's, that's not all there is, that something survives the death of the body. And we have, I, I believe we have a lot of uh, very conclusive evidence on our website of uh, not only direct communications with what are what we experience through EVPs, real-time devices, uh, through personal experience that I've actually had where I've seen probably 20, 30 ghosts, which doesn't sound like a lot when you take 4,000 cases over 46 years. But again, seeing a ghost is not what often people experience when they have an encounter. It's through sound, footsteps, noises, voices, things of that nature. And really at the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak, is that visual apparition. But um, I guess, as I said, trying to prove that ghosts exist uh, to try to communicate with them, to bring something to, say, uh, try to convince people to, you know, maybe talk about this at, you know, colleges and universities, which I have in the past, to try to um, put forth, you know, my, um, I guess you'd call it a, maybe a dissertation of what I believe, what we have captured, and what I believe points to the existence of life after death. Uh, and the existence of ghosts. So that's probably one of the main reasons that I got involved, but it was also curiosity. And it also became fun because I was meeting people all across the country, all across the world that had direct encounters with something um, that they can't explain. Now, can people lie about that? Of course. Can people fabricate? Sure. They can embellish. They can sensationalize the story of it. But what would be the purpose? And that's what I always you know, try to, to explain to people when I do presentations. If somebody has something going on in their house, person, uh, you know, private home, private business, public place, why would they call me to try to kind of pull the wool over my eyes and say, you know, that there's really nothing here, but we're going to try to test Dale? I mean, there's really no point in that. So, you know, I kind of take everything that people tell me with a grain of salt, but at the same time, I wasn't there when they had those experiences. So I can't you know, tell somebody outright that you're hallucinating, you're, you're making this up, you're fabricating it. I kind of go along with it. You know, I you know, try to then prove you know, what the claims of the individuals and the clients that call us into locations and to see if we can gather evidence, sufficient evidence to um, make a connection between what they say and what reality may be. Okay, so um, if, if say, I call you out of nowhere, I say, okay, something's going on, you know, in my office or whatever, um, would you take me through some type of vetting process, like maybe send me a questionnaire or something? I mean, how do you know, you know, you don't, I mean, you don't want to waste your time, and I know you try to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, but, you know, there are jokers out there. <laughs> People just want to do stuff and say stuff, but... um. Is there some type of vetting that you do uh, before you decide to take on a case? Okay. Well, first thing I should probably say is that in all the cases we've investigated, I don't think we've ever come across a case where somebody has purposely tried to uh, fabricate something, uh, in my opinion. Um, but we do have a, 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 
pretty extensive questionnaire. And the questionnaire is based off of um, past experiences, past locations we've investigated, and we add more and more types of questions on there. What we always like to do, and basically, uh, this is where it becomes pretty interesting, I think, is that I'm the only one that eventually knows you know, what's going on in a location. So I, I call the individual or the, or the individual calls me. And then I just, you know, just get just general information, name, address, phone number, so forth and so on. And um, then I tell them, to tell me what happens in their, happen in their own words um, before I ask any questions. Because I always, you know, I never want to lead somebody down a trail. In other words, you know, say, oh, did you see, did you have an experience? Did you see this? And the, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw it. And, you know, it's just like I kind of put that thought in their mind. So I like to say, you tell me everything that you can tell me from the very beginning. And you know, I write it down. I audio tape it or something. And then I'd later transcribe it. And then after that is complete, then I may ask pertinent questions, you know, like, you know, the age of the home. Are you near running water? What What's the home built of? Um, have you had any experiences with Ouija boards, seances, automatic writing, things of that nature? And I might even go into the past history you know, of the individual as far as, believe it or not, medications that they might take. Um, not that saying that they're, you know, everybody that I talk to is hallucinating or on, you know, mind-bending drugs, but uh, there are medications that can cause, you know, hallucinogenic type phenomena and we kind of want to want to rule that out to begin with or at least have a kind of a knowledge about that and if the people are you know really willing to get our help i mean this is all everything we gather is totally confidential it never goes anywhere beyond my file or or the people that are investigating with me and they're all sworn to secrecy so what will happen at that point is once we gather all the information and i and i feel that there's sufficient you know something there or at least something that we can possibly investigate, then I will assemble a team, and the team depends on the size, basically the size of the building or the place that we're investigating. Uh, we've investigated things from mobile homes to up to a 200,000 square foot building. So it depends on you know, what we're investigating, how many people we want to bring in, and also how comfortable the client would be to how many people uh, we bring in. Think of it this way. If you uh, called somebody to investigate and suddenly 20 strangers showed up at your house, you probably wouldn't feel too comfortable. So we always try to make it comfortable for the client. Then we go into what's called a three-phase step, uh, three, three steps, uh, three phases that we go through on every single investigation. Now, again, the people that we bring in are brought in totally ice cold. They have no idea what's going on, except obviously that we're going to a building that's allegedly haunted. That's really all they know. So. They are given floor plans that are usually provided by the client. You know, it draws like a little map of the building or the or the apartment or the condo or the house floor by floor. And they go in teams of two through the through the building with equipment, with the maps, and they write down what they experience. Um, and then after that's all completed, and of course, then the you know, teams that go through, they don't, you know, they don't talk to one another. I want to keep the team separate enough so that they don't hear what the other team is saying, so there's no cross-contamination. I want everybody to experience what they experienced on their own. Then we sit down with the client in phase two, and before the client tells us and the team what they've, she's experienced or he's experienced, our team will tell the client 
what they have picked up. And I think that's more scientific that way. Again, the client is not putting thoughts in the minds of our investigators. They will say, okay, we went to this, you know, we went to this bedroom and in this corner right over here where that TV said, we got a really strange feeling and we got a temperature drop or we saw a shadow or whatever the case might be. And then the client will then tell what they've experienced. And we see how it matches it at that point. And it's really quite amazing that most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, our team seems to pick up the hot spots in the building or the place where the client has experienced. And again, that goes back to what I talked to with her, with him and her on the phone. So I know that she's already told me that. I kind of take a back seat uh, when we kind of go through the, the building. I may still take some readings and so forth, but see, I already know what's going on. But again, I'm just walking through like everybody else, and I'm not saying, well, this is the hot spot here. And then in phase three, that's when we were set up our equipment, our cameras, uh, different devices. Uh, we would do EVP sessions, electronic voice phenomena with uh, real-time devices, uh, obelisks, ghost boxes, phasma boxes, uh, paratex, um, you know, mini portals, I mean, uh, or just ordinary uh, everyday uh, EVP sessions. We even have some real-time devices that uh, you can actually hear the uh, the voices coming through headsets on, in, in, within a second after you ask the question in some cases. So, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, uh, we go through all this, we assemble all this data, uh, and then we, um, again, we, we don't, we're not there to remove anything there. Uh, we tell the client, in fact, we're just finishing up a case here in Frankfurt, uh, Illinois, uh, where we need to uh, get all this stuff to her. So we would then go through all the video, all the audio, all the personal experiences, I will type up a report. I would then sit down with the client and uh, uh, tell them what we have experienced, the evidence, give them a copy of the report, give them a copy of the CD that has all the, the evidence on there, all the EVTs, any videos, any pictures that we took that were strange or unusual. And at that point, it's up to the client if she wants, he or she wants to take it any further. Uh, lots of times, people that call me, uh, call me that because they're curious. Um, they, they want to say, they want some verification that what they're experiencing may be real, that they're not going crazy. So they bring some team in like ourselves and then we either verify that or we, or we don't. I mean, there might be nothing going on. I, did, I, did, I didn't hear you say exactly how long you guys actually stay out on site or how do you determine that? Uh, it depends on how, how active the EVP sessions are. But typically, an investigation in a normal-sized home is about three to four hours. So typically, you guys are able to get something in, in that amount of time? I mean, uh, I mean, I know you can't make this stuff happen, you know, whenever you want. But, I mean, is that n normal for you guys? You're, you're able to, to really, you know, um, come up with a good idea and evidence to present to a client being out there four hours? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we, we've actually gotten um, evidence in some cases as fast as 20 minutes uh, being there, some real-time devices. Uh, just to kind of give you an example, I can't obviously discuss you know, the, anything more about you know, the name or the place that we're, we had just finished here. But uh, we were using a device called the Phasma Box, which is an which is a application which uses internet radio and sound banks mixed with a reverb and echo effect. So you can actually hear in real time uh, the, the answers to questions. Um, we actually asked the question uh, to the spirit, which we believe uh, might have been related to the client. And we said, 
can you tell us your, your, how old you are? And immediately a deep, gruff voice came through and says, very clearly, no mistaking, saying, I'm not talking. And um, we had uh, several other devices go off in this, in this location within the first few minutes. Uh, we use a device called a Tri-Field Natural EM Meter, which is probably the best EMF meter on the market. Uh, I use it because it does not give you false readings like K2s or anything like that. It does not pick up internal AC fields. So like you go close, close to a fuse box, uh, a, a wall socket or a light switch or a computer or anything like that, it will not go off. It only goes off on certain frequencies or anomalous energies of EMF. So we had this device at the corner of the bed, which apparently belonged to the late husband. Um, and um, this device never goes off. That's why uh, these teams of ghost hunting uh, teams on TV, they never use this device because it never goes off. But when it does go off, then you got to scratch your head and say, what the heck is setting that thing off? So we set it there, and it spiked really far, far up the, the meter, up to like a point, uh, a five point something, a six point something, which is very, very high. And then it went, then it went immediately back to zero, which meant that it wasn't a static field we were picking up. Something had moved across the meter. This was a transient moving electromagnetic field. So we asked the question, and I was, I'm sitting there, and I'm watching this meter go back to zero. So, okay, can you, can you make that meter? Can you do that again? And on command, it did it again, and it didn't do it. It didn't move the rest of the night. And that was pretty amazing. It was absolutely, it knocked my socks off, because that meter is not supposed to go off at all, hardly. And if it does go off, uh, something is setting it off that is not naturally explainable. That is amazing. I'm looking at those two. It's a tri-field EMF. Okay, so, uh, and and the listeners, if they want to pick one up, they are available on Amazon. Let's talk about one of your, um, or some of your locations. Uh, you said you guys, you know, 4,000 cases, a lot of, a lot of cases. Have you, tell us about, tell us about a, uh, maybe a business um, that was reportedly haunted uh, and the, and the uh, owner or whatever wanted you to come out and take a look. You know, probably a few hundred, actually, that we've been into. Um, one of the ones that we're working on right now uh, is in uh, Thornton, Illinois. Uh, it's called the uh, Thornton Distillery right now. And it, it was actually uh, run by gangsters during the gangster era. There was a guy named uh, Joe Stoltis. He was a gangster. Um, he was kind of loosely associated with Al Capone. And there was a underground artesian well that uh, uh, underground artesian well that um, is apparently haunted. There is activity going on there and we have experienced that in the past. Um, there was actually, well, according to newspaper articles, uh, bodies found in the walls um, of this uh, location uh, when they were doing some renovation. And it was thought that it maybe it was some gangsters that had double-crossed other gangsters, and they just did away with them. So um, uh, basically, um, we are working with with the with the owner right now, um, Andy, and um, we got uh, we're going to be doing a conference in there uh, in uh, October, October sixteenth, which is a Sunday that this year that we're setting up uh, to uh, bring in speakers. Uh, psychics, uh, tables, vendors, and then people will have an opportunity to go into 
that haunted underground artesian well to do a little mini investigation down there with myself or, or psychic or both. Yeah, but what are, what are they saying that they are experiencing there? What's happening on that location? Well, they they are they had experience in the past. It was called Widow McClary's. Uh, before that, it was called uh, the White Bear Brewing Company. Uh, so it's had numerous names. Um, there have been reports of uh, shadow figures that have been seen inside the building uh, and in the well from time to time. Um, people have caught orbs. Uh, my, my, I don't have much confidence in orbs unless it's something that's visually that you can see because there's too many explanations, including dust, insects water droplets, et cetera, for orbs. But uh, there have been, um, when it was Widow McCleary's, um, there were two full-bodied apparitions that were actually seen by the owner uh, and the owner's wife. Uh, they have video surveillance in there, so they know what's going on, and they know uh, somebody that comes in uh, you know, to get a drink so that they may be back, they can come to the front. Um, so somebody was, uh, Sharon Birkenfeld, who was the owner at the time, was in the back getting some uh, whiskey to come up the front to stock the bar, it's a mini bar. And she's looking on the, the surveillance system and there's a man sitting here by the bar. And it only took her like 20 seconds to get from where she was to where the bar is. And there's nobody in there and the doors are locked. There's nobody in the building. And it was clearly seen. Uh, her husband on one occasion, um, there's an upstairs, there's a pool table upstairs for entertainment. And again, uh, he was coming up the stairs. The building was closed at this time. And this is interesting. Most of these happened when there's nobody in the building. The building was closed. Nobody was in the building. And him and um, his son saw a dark figure of a man standing by the pool table. Again, it was not a distinct figure. Again, it was more like a shadow. This was a shadow figure as compared to the other one. This is like a full-bodied apparition. But they were both male. And he said it kind of turned in his direction, kind of, you know, then turned away and just disappeared. <laughs> he didn't know what to think about this at all. Um, he's actually a, um, a part of a, a, a motorcycle gang, you know, you know, biker biker guy. Uh, so he's not a guy that gets scared very easily. And it's that it, it kind of gave him the willies. Um, people that have been in the well have some, sometimes felt like they're being touched. Uh, they're being watched. There have been things that happen. And there's, there's running water in there usually almost 24-7. Uh, and that's one of the things that I discuss in my books that uh, kind of track ghosts is the, the energy given off by just natural running water. And the whole, the whole um, artesian well is lined and made up of limestone. And limestone and running water are the two top things um, that seem to attract ghosts. I've been doing yeah. a study here in the Chicagoland area, and if you uh, read my books on Windy City Ghost 1 or 2, that most of the places in there are near running water, and a lot of them are, are made of limestone. You are exactly right, actually. <laughs> okay, so um, when you say naturally running water, you mean like a creek? It's not like someone would have, you know, people have fountains and things like that. I mean, is that something, you know, I mean, were you talking about something like any running water, or it has to be, you said naturally running water? Well, I mean, it could be really... You know, if I think about it, it could be really any type of uh, running water, but usually it's it's naturally occurring, like a stream. This is being an artesian well. They used this very clear, perfectly sweet-tasting water. I mean, you can literally drink it right out coming out of there. It's so pure. 
Uh, they use it for their, their brewery, that they actually have their own brewery. They make their own liquor there as well from that artesian well, which basically runs all the time. Um, but yeah, I think the, you know, it's just like how we can act in ourselves being humans can take running water, harness it on hydroelectric plants that will turn turbines or turbines make steam and then we have electricity and so forth. I think the, the, the spirits are able to just harness that natural energy of running water to manifest sometimes a physical form, some, uh, most times through sounds, uh, maybe through smells, sometimes cold spots, things of that nature. Uh, but when you have an actual apparition, uh, and there have been several in this building, um, that is you know, highly unusual, actually, because it's not something that most people are going to see in their lifetime. Um, I've spoken to uh, literally thousands of people um, through the Internet. People you know, email me all the time. Uh, we're always doing things as far as investigating. Um, it always seems that when people call me in, most of the times they say, we hear things. Things are being dropped. Things are being moved around. We hear footsteps. We hear mumbling voices. We hear songs. We hear musical instruments. Um, we th it sounds like somebody dropped a whole you know, box of dishes in the kitchen and you go, there's nothing out of, out of place. Uh, it might sound like somebody's just taking all the silverware out of the drawers and throwing them around and nothing's out of place. These are residual sounds in, in, in many cases that can be tied to past events in the building um, that, again, don't cause any physical movement of objects uh, that would be like in a port, uh, moving, uh, having a, something appear or disappear or teleportation but actually just the sound of something that may have happened in that building in the past. Gotcha. Gotcha. What about, um, I'm interested to know if you guys have ever investigated any schools. Oh yes. Uh, many schools. Um, just to name a few, um, Bel Air school down in, um, Southern Illinois, uh, the first word schoolhouse in uh, Wisconsin Rapids. Are these uh, open schools or no? Are they closed or what? No, these are closed schools now. They're, they they are open most most often to paranormal investigations, places like Post Tunnel Elementary School uh, and, and others. And um, there was a school in, in Alden, Illinois, we investigated. There's a, um, I, mean, I mean, literally all over um, that we have, we have been to, um, I think the thing with schools, what, what would, in my opinion, what might make schools kind of haunted is just the activity of all those thousands of people that went through that building. Right, right. Uh, the children playing, uh, the release of, uh, you know, healthy, happy energy. Um, and then, uh, you know, you know, just people being able to later pick up on those, uh, those, those vibrations, if you will, those, those uh, disembodied voices or uh, the, the feelings of something, you know, being in the building, even though you can't see it. Um, yeah, have you gotten anything was, like that at any, like, disembodied voices oh, yeah. at any of the, uh, the school locations or anything? Tell me about something that happened to you guys. Um, trying to think off the top of my head, uh, but I know there have been, um, I, I'm not sure which, I'd have to look in the files, but I know there have been places in the building um, I know. I know. In Post Town Elementary School, uh, we actually did hear 
noises, we could call them disembodied noises because they, they, they actually, we heard them in real time. Uh, different from an EVP. An EVP, normally, if you pick up something, you don't hear it until after you play it back. But disembodied voices or disembodied noises are fascinating because you can record them, but you're hearing them in real time. And you mean everyone's the, hearing them at the same everybody. time? Everybody. Look, most everybody that's there will be able to hear that. Now, again, this is not something that because you have to be psychic or something uh, to pick up these voices. This is something, again, uh, a residual event that's taking place at that time that people are kind of tapping into um, just by hearing the sounds, which, again, sounds are more prevalent than any other of your senses. And uh, we have actually heard... Um, you know, voices coming down the hallways um, in real time. Uh, we have actually heard and recorded uh, sounds of footsteps and um, crashes and noises and bumps and whines and screams. Uh, the screams are the, are the worst. Um, to give you a really good example, and people can go to my website, if you go to Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, in Western West Virginia. It's a 256,000 square foot building. The very first time we went there, uh, we went in a group of 60, but there was you know, divided into four. So it was about 12 people in the group. That was a nice small group. And they took us floor to floor and gave us about an hour and a half or so for each floor to do whatever we wanted. As we were walking through and the guides talking and kind of pointing out you know, where you may want to set up, where things have happened in the past, um, we are hearing and recording screams coming down the hallway. And there's nobody in these uh, in each floor except our group. Uh, this is a stone building. It's the second, second largest um, stone mason building in the world next to the Kremlin, Kremlin being the, the biggest. You're not going to hear people from another floor coming through six, eight inches of concrete. And they're, you know, they're, they're so far apart. I mean, this is 256,000 square feet. There are several videos that you can actually watch in real time. We're walking down the hallway. You will just hear these screams coming down. In fact, there was a, a gentleman that was there with his wife, and this was their honeymoon. Can you believe that? They took us took her for a honeymoon to get scared uh, at, at a place and, and maybe have a, maybe, they were more like thrill seekers than anything else, which is fine. And that was a really weird female scream. And then you, you see him actually turn towards the camera because I'm facing down the hallway. And then you can see the look of fear in his face. And he goes, what was that? And uh, so we picked up and recorded nine disembodied screams during our walkthrough. So that's pretty amazing. Let me ask you something. What about, um, okay, so I'm inter interested in... Uh, discussing some of your equipment. I mean, you've, you said that you guys use something that measures something in real time. I haven't, that's not like an obelisk, is it? Is it, what is that exactly that you're using that measures things in, in real time? Well, we have several devices. The very first device that we actually purchased that was, uh, that you could use and actually have in real time would, would have been some of the obelisks. And I have a, an obelisk X, an obelisk PX, an obelisk 5. And I have the video obelisk, which is extremely hard to come by. It was put together by digital dowsing. It costs about $600. And it actually, it, it's not only, a, 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 you know, it picks up and displays you know, the, you know, the, the words, 
but it also has a night vision camera installed in there as well. And the, uh, the thing about the obelisk is that uh, there's two main modes that we use in there. Uh, there's a number of different ways you can use an obelisk, but we use what's called the dictionary mode. Now, in dictionary mode, there are some 4,200 and some odd words in the dictionary, which are very common to the English language. So when you ask a question, uh, what the spirits are trying to do in theory is to pull out the appropriate word as a response in answer to your question. And um, that's all in fine because, but in dictionary mode, it can only say one word at a time. So it really can't put together a sentence. So a lot of times we use what's called the phonetic mode. Now the phonetic mode is fascinating because the phonetic mode is allows the spirits to form their own words by putting together vowels and consonants into words and then stretching those words into entire sentences. And we've had entire sentences come through on the obelisk in the past. Um, we this is a very good example at um, um, the. Um, Hospital in Indiana, I think we have it called Hospital X, but then later on we, we named it a St. Mary's. Um, when we're walking through and we got to this room, there's actually, actually a video um, uh, that you can actually see. We're walking in total darkness. We come to this room and stack floor to ceiling with, with paper and uh, patient's records. And um, I like to sometimes take little little something back from me and I always ask permission, you know, can I, you know, is something on the ground or a brick or something like that. I have a collection at home. My wife doesn't like that, but um, my videographer who was actually filming at the time, he kind of said, hey, see all those papers, those records, you, you want to take, before you even finish the sentence, the obelisk said, in phonetic mode, get out of here. Clear as a bell. And it, after that, it never said another word. Uh, so something had apparently latched on to that obelisk in phonetic mode, created those words out of phonomes, vowels and consonants, spaced them into a, a, a readable, audible sentence, get out of here, so we could understand that. Um, we also use um, ghost boxes, which scan AMF and frequencies. We have an SB7 and an SB11. We have a what's called a mini portal, which I think is even better because it uses an SB7. But if you've ever used a ghost box, if you've ever heard somebody using a ghost box, you hear this, it's a scanning. And then you might hear a word come through or something like that. Um, the bad thing about the scanning feature is that sometimes the scanning of that overrides um, a, a very low... Uh, voice that you can't, won't be able to hear. So what the mini portal does, it allows you to remove that scanning. It's still scanning, but you don't hear anymore. You just hear the words coming through. So if a word comes through, a voice comes through, a sentence comes through, you'll hear that without all that background static. Um, it's called white noise. It's the it's, it's basically what you're hearing is the 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 white noise between the channels. Uh, so a lot of people think that oh, when you're using a ghost box, you're actually just picking up radio frequency. Well, not necessarily, because the SB11 actually allows you to disconnect from the antenna, so you don't pick up any radio frequency coming through. What you what I believe people are hearing when they use a ghost box 
is spirits talking in the white noise between the channels. Yeah, and I've seen that. You know, it it does make that scanning noise, which I wonder. I'm like, maybe it's going over top of, you know, them talking. You know what I'm saying? You How do you know you're getting every word? But Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and then I I do personally believe that they they work. I mean, I've I've seen some people use those getting voices uh and responses that you can clearly make out. Um but do, do those boxes actually pick up residual type, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned the scream earlier. I mean, would it pick up something like 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 residual sound or is it uh always a response from some type of of uh, paranormal phenomena happening in that space? I think it actually does both. I mean, we have examples where we believe that, and uh, we break down ghosts into two main categories. You know, what's called an intelligent spirit, that's a surviving personality that you can actually communicate with. So you ask a question, you get a response, that's intelligent. Or maybe you see you see a ghost, you see the ghost, the ghost sees you, there's recognition. Um, that's that's not, doesn't happen that often, but it does happen, at least we've been pretty lucky, we've had a lot of those interactions. Most of what people experience in hauntings, what most of what we have is residual. In other words, it's like a tape loop, playing the same thing over and over again. It might be um, their death scenario, maybe being hit by a car, maybe seeing a car, you know, speeding through, the, it's a ghost car. Uh, people say, well, how does a car come back as a ghost? Well, it doesn't. It's just the residual imagery, imagery of that tragic event. So when you're doing a ghost box, we have examples of obviously direct communications and direct answers like immediately, but we get a response, which is amazing. Um, not all the time, but, you know, good portion of the time. And we have actually picked up residual stuff. And I'll give you a really good example. Uh, we have investigated uh, almost every year uh, the tragic plane crash in Chicago of Flight 191, which happened on May 25th, uh, 1979, I believe it was, um, and it killed like 278 people. It's still the worst air disaster in the United States. Now, I was the very first investigator even on the property back in 1979. Uh, every year on May 25th, we try to get there at right around 3.05 p.m., which is the time the plane went down. And we have gotten some amazing, just absolutely amazing residual uh, stuff going on there. Um, people can actually view that on the website again. But if you one of the one of the ones that's really amazing is that. Um, you know what happened, basically, lost the wing, it kind of went inverted, and then it crashed about 4,600 feet further away. It just could not stay up on the air. Was it was it in a, a residential area, or where did it crash at exactly? It, it actually crashed in a field just short of a trailer court, thank heaven. Oh, wow. Uh, mm. It would have uh, been more victims. Yeah, It would have been a lot more victims. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what happened is that we actually picked up... Um, communication that apparently sounded like it was coming either from the first officer, probably the first officer, because they usually fly and take off, but it could have been the captain, it could have been Captain Lutz. And it said very clearly, almost made it, and then a few seconds later, need more power. And that's amazing because people and aircraft, uh, people like the FAA, the National Transportation Safety Board, they 
when they examined this this crash, they said it was amazing that they kept that plane in the air that long because it had stripped all the hydraulics. They had no hydraulic control of the airplane at all. But he said almost made it. So I don't know what that means. Maybe he was almost had it in control, but then he said need power. And that's amazing because, again, one engine was gone and the other engine was still going, but they didn't have enough power or altitude to try to save it. But then we've actually gotten direct responses at that same crash site. We asked, what, what was the name of the airline from that crash? And American came through. We asked, what was the flight number, which is flight 191? It said one night and then it stopped. So, so I thought, that's pretty close to being a direct response. I said, who's the pilot? And it said Captain Lutz. It actually said the name of the pilot. Was that, was that Captain Lux, you think, saying that to you or another? You know, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say because, um, you know, we don't have, um, I haven't ever been able to find, um, this is what I try to do to try to verify some of this stuff. I go painstakingly to try to verify this stuff. I had tried to find the, the captain and the co-pilot talking either, I mean, there is some minor conversation between the cockpit and, and, and you know, the, the, the O'Hare Airport, or maybe something before the crash, you know, like maybe them, you know, just talking or something or, or a family movie or, you know, video or something like that to try to compare it to what we picked up as an EVP. Uh, we were able to do that in this case in Frankfurt. Um, the EVP that came through that was captured sounds almost identical, almost identical to a video shot when that man was still alive. Uh, so that's what we try to do a lot of times. Um, we, one of the most interesting stories about this, and I'll try to make this very brief, is that um, one of the people that were killed in that plane crash, uh, there were a lot of Playboy executives. They were going back to Los Angeles. And um, Judith Wax had just written a book called Starting in the Middle, about middle-aged life. And on page 191 of that book, which is the same as the aircraft, she discusses her intense fear of flying in airplanes. Wow. Mm, mm. That's amazing. Um, there are so many other weird occurrences that happened, including Lindsay Wagner, who was the, who was uh, used to play on the Bionic Woman on television. Her and her mother were scheduled to fly that aircraft to Los Angeles. When they got to the airport, she got kind of a premonition, kind of a sick feeling, and said, "We don't. I don't think we should fly in the aircraft today." And they didn't. And if they would have got on, they would both would have been killed. So that was a premonition. And for weeks before that, a man in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, David Booth, had dreamed every single night of a large body aircraft crashing. He even contacted the FAA, a guy in, um, from the FAA. Um, don't remember his name right offhand, but. Uh, he called them every night, and they didn't. They didn't kind of, you know, poo-poo the idea or say he was crazy. They listened. They actually asked, "Can you tell me any 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 numbers you see on the, on the plane? Can you tell me this, what what color the plane was? Can you tell me what the flight was? You know, if it was American, United, you know, Delta." He said it wasn't real specific. The dream wasn't that specific. But coming home on May 25th at 3:05, came on the radio that plane had crashed, and he says he knew that's what he was dreaming all this time, and he never had a dream after that. 
That's pretty amazing stuff that happened there. And just recently, they have opened up that area, the actual crash site. Now, I was the only one to be there in 1979, and nobody has been allowed on there since until this last May 25th, which wasn't uh, about a month ago or so. Um, they opened it up because they're putting a new ramp from the um, airport to the um, interstate. And I was actually able to walk up there right onto the actual physical space where that plane went down. And I'll tell you, it's bone chilling. Was it, did they, did they not allow people on there, uh, Dale, because of, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, that's, that's a long time to keep people off of the air. Was it public property? What, what was the, who owned the land that it actually crashed on? After the crash site, um, you know, there are a lot of things that happened. You know, I mean, it, it did, there was a, a, a Ravenswood airport hangar that was destroyed. Two people were killed on the ground. There were some parts of the plane that actually went into the trailer court. And we have, I have pictures of this as, as well. But eventually that whole area was taken over by a canine training facility. And they, they, they only allowed, um, I tried to get on there many times. I call them every year. Uh, I try to get a hold of different people. I even went through the Chicago Police Department because I have friends in Chicago Police Department see if they could talk and they couldn't get us on there they said it was a very personal area even though it had happened uh more than 40 years ago and they said it was it was personal just to the family so i said well let me see if i can contact some family members and maybe with the family members that we can get on and the family members didn't really want any part of my experiment unfortunately but then just this may past may 25th they opened it up uh, we were going to, I brought my friend from England who came in for two weeks, as I mentioned earlier, and we were, uh, we were going to do something from on the other side of the fence, like we always do. And the guy that owns the, uh, now there's a uh, truck storage uh, area, which is right again on the area where the plane went down. He said, well, you can go right over there and drive right over there and, uh, and go in there. And I said, uh, well, I don't know if I'm going to do that. So we walked over there and, um, there was no no trespassing signs, nothing that said keep out private property because we always make sure that we don't trespass or do anything like that. And we were able to stand right on there and uh, we actually did a YouTube video on that. Uh, that's uh, actually a Facebook Live, which would eventually be a YouTube video. But um, uh, it was it was amazing just being able to stand on that area, that spot, pretty much. Like, you don't know exactly where it went down, but uh, we were a lot closer this year than I had ever been. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't get any EVPs this time, which was kind of kind of weird because every year that we had went there, we had gotten something. We had gotten a name. Even Judith Wax, since his name came through, when we asked, uh, you know, is there anybody here? Wax, Wax, like that came through. I go, well, that's Judith or Sheldon Wax. That's their last name. So... It's amazing. Um, now, you know, we always, you know, we don't, let me put it this way. You know, we have great respect for places we go to. We always have, we always do. We don't provoke. We don't do weird stuff like seances or Ouija boards or staging or anything like that. We respect the privacy and the spirits that might be there. So we don't go there just to say, hey, I was there. Okay. We go there to see, in many cases, if there is anything 
that the spirits wish to get across to family members. And that's why I tried to do what some family members I spoken to. I said, well, you never had a chance to say goodbye. You know, maybe if you come with and your family and you ask and you talk and there's something there, maybe there is some intelligence, something still there. I hope not. I hope they've all moved on by now. But maybe you can have some closure. And that was really my way of uh, not exploiting the area, but trying to get just collect data, collect evidence, and give some people, some family members, some closure at the same time. And I totally get that you want to help uh, give closure to families. I mean, it's got to be difficult to lose anyone really just out of nowhere anyway. Um, I'm wondering, like in those cases, in those instances, in those instances, you said you don't usually have an intuitive or a psychic with you, but wouldn't you, uh, I mean, wouldn't you want to bring one, especially on a site like that at a, you know, as a tragic plane crash, that they would definitely be able to pick up on something uh, for a family member if, you know, if you wanted to try and help them uh, communicate with those those people that have passed on. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we like I say, um, I've been doing this for like 46 plus years now. And um, I, I won't say I'm psychic. I won't say I'm intuitive. But I will say that um, I've been exposed to this field for such a long period of time. And I believe I have. Uh, very uh, resoundingly have had communication and contact uh, with people from the other side. So um, maybe just because of my longevity in the field uh, allows me to perhaps uh, gather maybe a bit more evidence than somebody who has only been just starting in the field or something. Uh, maybe they, they, they seem like they're more familiar to me because they know basically that I, I always approach them in a kind fashion without promote, pr provoking. I always say, uh, if you want us to leave, just say leave or get out and we'll be happy to leave. Uh, if we're crowding your space, we'll, we'll leave. Um, but in, in some cases, you know, we do have some people that are, I will say, maybe a bit intuitive. We don't have any full-blown psychics. And um, usually it's been my, um, when I started the group with, uh, with Marty Ricardo back in the uh, 70s, um, we always try to stay more into scientific because that's something that people can can hold on to, they can grasp onto. Uh, when you bring in somebody, and I have nothing against psychics. I've worked with psychics in the past. They're very good. Uh, they're excellent. They've told me things at places they've never been to that, that have knocked my socks off. But I think if when you if you begin to uh, if your group begins to go away from scientific, more towards psychic. Um, that's more of a, um, it's something that you really can't grasp onto. Um, you know, we try to stay more into the uh, scientific realm than we do go into, into the uh, spiritual realm, only because uh, the spiritual realm is, 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 is more of a, um, an area that you can't really kind of grasp onto. You can't present that. It's, it's more... Uh, it's, it's not substantive. It's more like in the mind of the beholder. Uh, so it's not something that you can really prove. Um, that's why when we do the scientific, I mean, if we got EVPs, we got pictures, we got videos, we got personal experiences. I mean, that's all substantive stuff that we can lay out on the table. We can put on a, a YouTube channel. We can put up on our website for people to view. Um, 
the psychic end of that also does work in well sometimes with uh, um, you know, our investigations because, again, if we bring in a psychic, we bring in a psychic ice cold. We don't tell them what's been going on. Uh, because to tell them the whole story, it's just, you know, it's just, in, in my case, it's kind of, uh, kind of taints the investigation because they already didn't have preconceived notions of what's going on before they get there. Um, that's why a lot of these TV shows uh, I'm very skeptical of because they, they, they do that with their entire crew. They tell their entire crew as they're driving to this bike, I'll expect to be, you know, haunted over here in the basement or they got a creepy attic or something like that. And so they go right to those locations instead of investigating the whole spot. Uh, like we would do. So uh, um, I think we have been more scientific based, but we sometimes do mix a bit of this, uh, bit of uh, uh, spiritual or sometimes psychic. Um, and especially if we go to places like you had mentioned, go into a crash like site like that. We had uh, we had we had psychics that were willing to go there uh, with us that day if we if we would be able to set something up with the family and the family. Um, I just didn't want anything to do with that, so I, you know, I just uh, totally, uh, you know, feel for them, and um, uh, we didn't push that. So uh, we were able to get in later ourselves without having to do that route. And uh, now that I know that that area is, is open, uh, I will be going back there again uh, a few more times before they finally enclosing it uh, due to the new ramp, and then we can maybe bring out some more gear and equipment, and maybe uh, uh, get some more. Uh, good evidence from that site. My last question for you, Dale, is I would like for you to tell us about one of the most active sites you've ever been been to. Probably the, the place that we had been most active and we got probably the most uh, data from was a place called Old South Pittsburgh Hospital in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. Uh, we were there, I believe, a total of four or five times total. Um, initially, uh, you were able to spend the night in the building. Uh, you were actually sleeping in, in uh, patients' rooms. And so we had, uh, that was kind of neat because you were able to set your gear up, leave it around all night if you wanted to. Uh, the next day, if you wanted to go out to lunch, you came back, the equipment would still be there. Um, we, uh, we experienced some really, really bizarre phenomena inside there. <clears throat> Absolutely strange pictures that we got of um, a shadow figure walking down the hallway holding on to one of the rails along the uh, uh if you've ever been to the hospital you know they got rails along the walls for people that uh, are uh, um, can't walk real well they hold on for support uh, we have a picture of a shadow person doing that we have a full-bodied apparition that we actually caught of a lady in the room uh, that room is a place where she once lived. Uh, we don't know if that apparition we caught is actually the woman who used to live there. Um, but we know that um, when that person died, uh, her personal belongings are still in that room to this very day. So those are trigger objects. Uh, if anything, they would draw that person back to a place that she was familiar with and a place where she has personal items. Now, that might have been her. I mean, I don't know. We also picked up strange EVPs as we were walking through um, the building. And it sounded like somebody talking over the PA system. You kind of get that sort of like a tinny type of voice coming through. Nobody heard it. And we got videos of it that people can actually watch on this website. Um, so it had to be an EVP. It was caught on the audio portion of a videotape, a high eight uh, videotape on a Sony Nightshot camera. 
which I believe you can capture EVPs on the audio track of videotape because videotape is what they call magnetic recording tape, uh, very similar to the old open reel to reel tapes, deck units that um, the very early EVPers used to use. Uh, we also were in the nursery, um, which is kind of a weird setup for a hospital right down the, the hall from where the operating rooms were and where the psychiatric patients were kept, which was kind of a weird layout for this hospital. But anyway, we were in, we were in the nursery and we actually heard disembodied screams coming down the hallway, female screams. And we weren't very close, excuse me, we weren't very far away from the maternity ward. So maybe it was some woman giving birth and screaming her head off. We don't know. So the very next year, we went back with the same team, even a, a person I like to work with called Jeannie Chilton. She used to run a, a group called PRIAM, Paranormal Research Investigators of Missouri. And um, she said, on an EVP, you're doing a ghost box. Last year, we heard somebody screaming down the hallway. Can you tell me who that person was? And immediately it says, probably was Florence, clear as a bell. And um, and that and that was a woman's it voice. It was a woman's voice, yes. Um, and then we were all sitting on the second floor doing an EVP in total darkness. Uh, they have these big, heavy metal doors that are, are, are wide open and they got door stops on them. And suddenly this one door starts to close against the doorstop. It's actually pushing the doorstop and actually hit one of our researchers, which and she was she was a female researcher. So she got a uh, she got a little bit um, discombobulated for a second and said, whoa, how's that thing opening up by itself? We've actually caught shadow figures. We were standing um, by the nurse's station, which is where we normally set up all our gear. We have our uh, cameras down the hallways, and we have monitors that we can monitor them from the nurse's station, uh, either Wi-Fi cameras or wired cameras. They come through um, a monitor that can split up the screen into like nine different little tiny uh, television screens. And we were talking there to one of the, um, the guides, and right next to us was, was the elevator. And she was talking about the elevator, and she said, well, you know, the elevator doesn't work, obviously. It's locked down on, on the main floor here. And no sooner had she said that than we heard, ding, that little ding that you get when, you know, you, you reach your floor, and then the door opens up. Well, the door didn't open up, but we heard the ding come right from the elevator. I mean, we had, we had such, such an amazing array of stuff that happened there, um, lots of EVPs, um, Lots of pops, footsteps, noises, voices, shadow figures. Um, there was some, at one time, some manipulation of actual equipment was moved by something or someone. Uh, it was not any of us because we have cameras facing all different directions. So nobody bumped the camera or, or hit the, uh, the cord or anything like that. Cause we taped all the cords down and we try to keep them away from the... Uh, the middle of the room where people are walking. So, yeah, that was Old South Pittsburgh Hospital, and it's still a place that people can investigate um, down in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. It's a abandoned hospital. It's in, it's in really good shape, actually. It's not filthy or dirty or black mold or, or dust or debris or stuff like that. So 
um, or asbestos. It's all been cleaned up really nice. And uh, unfortunately, you can't stay overnight anymore like we used to be able to do. But uh, it's still a place that I think if uh, if, I, if anybody asked me uh, where it would be a good place to get a lot of evidence, I would say that location for sure. All right. Very good. So you uh, say say if uh, someone wants to go visit there, are you guys getting permission from someone yeah. uh, to, to get on location? Or what do you have to do, actually, to get access to it? Yeah, you would have to contact, uh, uh, just, just Google Old South Pittsburgh Hospital, and uh, I don't know the actual website, but it would pop up, and then um, you could either call them, um, or they would have a, uh, a calendar of uh, available dates that are still open, and then you would just book them um, either uh, via phone or via the website. Very good. They all really enjoyed this conversation. I want you to uh, take a moment to tell my listeners where they can find out more information about you or any other projects you and your team are working on. Sure. Uh, they, if people can find me uh, uh, most often on the, uh, first of the, you can find me on Facebook. I do have a, a Facebook page uh, just for myself, Dale Kesmeric. I also have several other pages, uh, just Ghost Research Society. You can actually uh, search for that. There's one for the Ghost Research Society Press, which also publishes uh, our books. Uh, the We have 19 titles that I have produced. And there's also one for my ghost tours called Excursions into the Unknown Incorporated, which you can find on there as well. Or you can go to my website, www dot ghostresearch.org ghost research all one word all lowercase dot org and that's about it i guess and uh, are you coming out with any more books are you working on anything right now for your books not at the moment i actually have uh, six books right now a windy city ghost one and two a field guide to spirit photography field guide to ghost hunting techniques a field guide to haunted highways and bridges yeah, which is my latest book. And I also have one on called Illuminating the Darkness, the Mystery of Spook Lights. Um, I wanted to write, actually, uh, I was in the course of writing three more books, actually, A Windy City Ghost 3, uh, and also um, uh, one on uh, my 40-plus years in the field uh, to kind of show how things have changed since I got involved into where it is today. So I may yet still write those books if I can find some time. All right, Dale Kazmarek, my special guest. Dale, many blessings to you and your team. And I really appreciate your time. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I invite you to follow my other podcast, Mysterious Radio. Please share this show with others that are interested in the paranormal. I want to give a special thanks to our co-creator, and executive producer Kim Kyle who brought this show to you today and working hard behind the scenes our team of four I want to thank them as well I am your host K-Town and you're listening to Paranormal Fears Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky Lucky? In line at the deli I guess Aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No 
purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.